I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Gabriel Ojeda Seguet, who runs back and forth along the Miami-Philly axis, child of Cuban exiles and Puerto Ricans, whose first collection, Oil and Candle, a book I really like, Game, published by Timeless Infinite Light in 2016, is a set of writings on, among other things, the precarity of Latino American lives, who has also published four chapbooks, including Where Everything is in Halves, Poems Against Death, through the legend of Zelda, who has recently completed a manuscript on jazzercise. Are you mocking jazzercise? No, I love jazzercise. Okay, good. I figured... <laughs> and who I'm happy to say is a member of the staff of this very Kelly Writer's House. And by Simone White, author recently of of Being Dispersed. Wow, Simone, what a great book. I, encount- I encountered it through Poem Talk uh, with Rachel Zoff and Eileen Miles, I think, and... Um, and Erica Kaufman. And Erica Kaufman. Uh, what a great book. Of Being d- Dispersed, a much-praised, appropriately much-praised book published by Future Poem, and also of Unrest, Ugly Duckling Press, and House Envy of All the World Factory School, whose Dear Angel of Death, a book of prose and a long essay is forthcoming from UDP, who is currently program director at the Poetry Project and visiting assistant professor of literary studies at the new school, Eugene Lang College, who lives in Brooklyn and hails originally from this very city. Am I right? Philadelphia. That's great. Mount Airy. Yeah, Mount Airy. And by Q. Lee, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York, CUNY, author of Reading Descartes, Otherwise, Blind, Mad, Dreamy, and Bad, 2012, co-editor of a special women's studies quarterly issue on SAFE, 2011, and a critical philosophy of race issue on xenophobia and racism, 2014, who regularly teaches at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, Naropa University, in the summertime. As Q puts it, pondering philo-poetics with poets, among whose many current projects is an article on you, I mean the second person pronoun you, and cartographical consciousness, which draws in part on the poetry of Claudia Rankin, whose work we are going to be discussing today here on Poem Talk. So thank you, Q, for coming all the way from New York. Pleasure to be here. This thank is you. your first time at the Kelly Writers House? Uh, no. The second time. Second. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you it's for coming. I hope here. this is the first of many Poem Talks. Mm-hmm. And Gabe, just great to see you every day. <laughs> it's good to be here. to do our jazzercise class every oh, yeah. Thursday afternoon here at the Writers <laughs> And Simone, um, you're under the weather, and we're so sorry to hear that. And you're in Brooklyn. Yeah. You, this is the first time ever that we're using, we're doing it by phone, um, and we hope it turns out well. But if anybody can pull it off, it's you, even, even if you're caught by flu. So, is thank that you. true that this is the first time someone hasn't appeared in the studio? For first time, talk? we're very fussy. 
Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so let's get right to it. We're here today to talk about a brief passage from Claudia Rankin's book-length poem, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, subtitled An American Lyric, which is available in print from Grey Wolf Press, published in 2004. Claudia Rankin's pen sound page includes many different recordings of performances of parts of this long poem. For instance, a Segway series reading of January 2005 and a really good reading and conversation with Major Jackson in 2006, in which she very helpfully comments on the poem's forms and themes. And other readings, including an early reading of the poem dated May 17, 2002, which precedes its publication in the studios of WKCRFM in New York City, and the passages we've chosen for today's poem talk were recorded on that occasion and can be found on pages 15 through 18 of the Gray Wolf text. So here now is Claudia Rankin reading from Don't Let Me Be Lonely. I leave the TV on all the time. It faces the empty bed. I don't go into the bedroom during the day once I've dressed. I keep a sweater over the chair in the study. Occasionally I am wearing a shirt and I feel like putting on pants, or vice versa. Then I go into the bedroom and people are conversing. Occasionally I sit on the edge of the bed and listen. Yesterday... There was a docudrama on boys caught in the penal system, juvenile offenders. Just when I entered the room, a man began interviewing one of the boys. Man. He is deceased. Boy. He is dead to me. Man. So he is not deceased. Boy. I don't know. He could be dead. Man. Is he or is he not dead? Boy. He's been dead to my life. Man. Someone wrote in your file that he is dead. Did you tell someone he is dead? Boy. All right. He is dead. Um, papa. That day I tried to write a play. I thought I was dead. You thought you were dead. I thought I was. Did you feel dead? I said, God rest me. God rest your soul. I thought I was dead. You tried everything. I waited. You spoke aloud? I said, God, rest me. You'd let me be lonely. I thought I was dead. An older friend developed Alzheimer's. For a while he understood he was getting ill and would die within this illness. It was during that time he wrote on a slate message board in his house, This is the most miserable in my life. He was moved to a home, manor care. Then he became violent and was moved to another home, Fairlawn. All this took five years. Then he died. I brought the chalkboard home with me. It's on a wall in my study. But when you first walk in this room, you can't see it. 
because of the bookcase. Every time I look up from my desk and at the chalkboard, I hear Joseph Brodsky saying, What's the use of forgetting if it's followed by dying? Joseph Brodsky died, but I can't stop him from saying it every time I look up. What's the use of forgetting if it's followed by dying? I don't know how to stop things like that. Q, why don't we start um, with the conversation between the man and the boy? Can you say anything that occurs to you as you encounter that? I mean, for for folks who are listening to the performance, they're not mm-hmm. seeing the way it's printed. Maybe you can mm-hmm. start by describing mm-hmm. that. Uh-huh. Um, so the conversation uh, on print is, you can see it, is on TV. Yeah. Right? So it's framed, literally. And so we have a visual kind of representation of watching TV. So I'm interested in also, as you uh, point out here, the kind of framing of it, right? The, the beginning of, of the whole piece begins that I leave the television on all the time. Yeah. So TV is everywhere I mean, as, it, as, it, as it present. It's yeah. only present. Yeah. So we have a kind of uh, framing within a TV or televisual space, yeah. right? So I think this is a kind of uh, embedding that yeah. I think is very interesting. For that reason, it sort of shifts the, the mode from the kind of observational yeah. to the actual content, which becomes uh, uh, the second order kind of, you know, the object. Yeah. So, Simone, Q brings up that this conversation occurs in the presence of the space because the TV's on all the time. And so um, the speaker... Claudia Rankin or whoever is the speaker in this passage goes in there into the other room, I guess, and people are conversing, but that seems to be what's on television. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. your, your thoughts on this uh, conversation inside the TV box? I mean, I love what you said, Q, about that television's sort of frost and, um, you know, physical frame being the frame for the book, but also there are sort of many other um, rectangular frames right, for the book, the book itself being this long, long thing. Um, it's it's just it's sort of like an infinite series of boxes, and this conversation seems to reflect that infinite series of boxes. Perfect um, setup, um, Gabe. Because now we have to. Now it's time to turn to the conversation. There's a man and a boy, and the man is interviewing. It's. It's investigative and it's just quasi-prosecutorial in that there's some fact that's being ascertained which apparently was made metaphorically and the the man is being literal in trying to establish that the f- boy is fatherless. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty big stuff. But do you want to take us there? So we only know that this boy is some sort of juvenile offender. That's the term that Rankin uses. We don't know who the man is. Seemingly, I mean, he could work for the penal system. He could work for the documentary. That's sort of not told to us. And then the he is also just completely lost to us. So we have two people having a conversation where it's unclear whether a person is alive. And then we actually have no, you know, fleshed version of any of these three people. And it's perhaps of note that the TV that we're talking about being printed on the page doesn't have any physical representation of these people. There isn't actually an image that Rankin would have watched. Which is what you would have seen on the television. Right, exactly. So 
there's actually an investment in making what's already pretty strange a conversation even stranger formally. So what I want to do is, and I'm improvising this, but I think it's still going to work out. Let's pause and take just the topic of death of deceased people. And let's compile the four of us a few instances of how this book, which is an epic collage form, how this book, how many ways this book returns to death as an issue. So I'll start. Um, she finds out, the speaker finds out her mom lost a baby and it didn't seem like a death. All right. Who wants to go next? Another death. I Prin- can. Princess Diana. Yeah. She, she dies. Um, okay. She mentioned. Her children die. Whose and children? Her husband in a car accident. Her sister's children and right. her husband are killed in an accident. Right. She Absolutely. talks about 9-11 in depth. We have 9-11. We have... Um, Amadou Diallo. Diallo. And, well, Abner Louima did not die, but could no. have. Um, Paul Ceylon uh, is someone who was not a victim of the Holocaust, but it writs about death. Mm-hmm. Gertrude Stein's There cancer. are dead yeah. Kennedys. Brodsky is dead. Did you say the dead Kennedys? Yeah, dead Kennedys. Many dead Kennedys. Right. Um, We have misdiagnosed cancer, mastectomies, and DNRs. Presumably that Mm. leads to death. So why would a... uh, This is a huge question, and please, I'm being silly in a way. Q, this Mm -hmm. is for you. Why would a poem that calls... An epic poem that calls itself an American lyric... Mm-hmm. be so interested in death of this sort? Uh-huh. I was very interested in uh, not only the, 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 the epigram, but the very beginning of this book, mm-hmm. where, well, let me read the first sentence. I mean, I, I think that this will, I hope, uh, get to, to your question about why death. Uh, there was a time when I could say no one I knew well had died. Right? It sort of begins with a sort of sense of innocence, mm-hmm. right? Sort of almost pre-mortal <laughs> consciousness, right? It's mm-hmm. like a child, like you know, it's almost like this sort of the uh, this image or the trope of America as this innocent child, and there is a kind of sense of experiencing death mm-hmm. or someone dying, um, not even firsthand. It's witnessing. Right? Yeah. And so this, now this is not to suggest, I'm just quoting, no one died. This is the beginning of, of the book, no, no, page five. When I was eight, my mother became pregnant. She went to the hospital to give birth and returned without the baby. Mm. I think it's kind of important, Pastor, let me just read it a little bit. Right? So where is the baby? We asked, we asked. Did she shrug? She was the kind of woman who liked to shrug. Deep within her was an everlasting shrug. And this is a uh-huh. key passage too, Q, uh-huh. because momentarily we mm-hmm. realized that the death that she knew was mm-hmm. the death she'd seen on television. That's right. So mediated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later she sees her father and mm-hmm. she realizes that there's a greater impact, but, but death is mediated. So that takes right, us exactly. back, Simone to the man and the boy Mm -hmm. in the conversation. So, I mean, I'll just set you up, Simone, by saying in the most, let us say the the man is really kind of a public defender trying to help the boy and simply ascertain whether the boy had meant on some kind of form or record that his father was dead. And he's simply asking him a series of literal questions. And the boy is either so resigned to being misunderstood 
that he becomes poetic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or um, it's just a classic instance of miscommunication that I, I'm, is definitely generational and maybe racial as well. Um, so, you know, what do we do with that? Well, I mean, it sort of raises the main, for me, the main thematic concern of the book, which is like, what what does dead mean anyway? And what what does Claudia mean when she repeatedly sort of refers to being dead or feeling dead or, or um, imagining that someone is dead? So the conversation between the man, the man and the boy, you know, reflects that kind of um, profound confusion about the word itself, which is, you know, the sort of meat of the poem, in my view, but also to propose that death, especially for black people um, in America, is, is cut, or witnessing death or being aware of um, the sort of profoundness of, and the everywhereness of, of the possibility of death is a kind of primal scene of um of black life so that in childhood one becomes in some ways um, desensitized to the question of whether or not one is alive or dead or whether others around one are alive or dead. Just uh, I want to linger a little bit um, further on this question of death, if, if you don't mind. So one thing that also I find so fascinating about their boxed uh, dialogue huh? that sounds more like a sort of parallel soliloquy, like, you know, they're not really communicating. Right? Uh, the boy's answer, right, is never straightforward. He's, he's dead to me, right? So I'm interested in compositional sort of variation of this idea of he's dead. Is he dead or not, right? So he's dead to me. And the second one, well, he could be dead, right? So there's not a variation. It's a kind of avoidance or like a not really cannot face it, right? Cannot really say it. And the third one is he has been, he's been dead to me, right? So again, like it's not he's dead, he has been dead. And the final one, all right, he's dead. That's the point where I see the shrug, the deep eternal shrug. Mm-hmm. Okay, you, I, I give it to you if that's what you wanted, right? That's great. So it's a kind of interesting compositional intensity, right? Capturing this impossibility of presence of death itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, Gabe, so following what Q said, we turn to the speaker's or Claudia Rankin's own poem within the poem, which is double-spaced and verse, mm-hmm. so ragged right margin. The transition is umpa-pa, which is, you know, really, like, important pun, I think. Then she can't work, and so she writes a poem, which means she can work. You want to write? Because I can't work one day. And then I wrote, okay, so can you do, this is hard. Can you connect the poem she writes to the conversation with the man and the boy? I think so. Um, Going off of what Q is saying, um, the the last line of the conversation between the man and the boy, which is, all right, he is dead or he is dead, seems like a resignation or... For me, it's like an attempt to move onto the man's terms. And the kid has been sort of running around saying something else, a a different kind of state of being alive or not. He's dead to me. He's been dead to my life. Um, And that last line seems to be a a resignation of saying, fine, I'll move into your terms. And so the conversation on the next page, and actually a conversation a little bit earlier in the book, reminds me of that same issue of figuring out what are the terms for defining whether something is dead or not. And so 
Rankin is reflecting that onto herself or some imagined speaker, in the, at least in this page. So I thought I was dead. And then another person saying, you thought you were dead? I thought I was. Did you feel dead? Not questioning in the same way as the man, but questioning in a similar way. It's like they're basically working in different vocabularies and um, there's a sort of confusion there that makes them separate in the same way the man and boy are. One thing that I really love about the book is that repeatedly um, the speaker or Claudia sort of asks herself questions about what people have said. There, there are a bunch of sort of runs of questions where people will say something and she'll comment with a question on the order of, did you feel dead or what does that mean or something mm-hmm. like that. And I, and I, this, this poem, the sort of poetics of questioning that this dialogue kind of begins or, or sort of presses forward as one of the sort of poetic modes of the book is really, is just really, really interesting. And there are two modes of these kinds of questions in this book. And Q, I'm going to turn to you mm-hmm. for the $64,000 question about the title <laughs> in a second. Mm-hmm. One mode is uh, in, inquisitorial, interrogative, uh-huh. or, pro- or even prosecutorial. And the other is what might be called sympath- empathetics therapeutic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh which is what we see somewhat in this poem that follows the prosecutorial misunderstanding. So in this poem, we don't know who the other voice is. Right. Uh, and of course, it could be in the modernist mode, you know, the poet herself. So what does what? the second voice mean? Yeah. Gabe, we'll turn to you on this. What does the second voice mean after the first voice says, I thought I was dead, and the second says, you tried everything? Can you be literalistic about what that might mean? Like, have you taken aspirin or you, have you seen the doctor? <laughs> I, it's like you tried everything to make sure you were or weren't dead. Like, that's sort of the way I read it was, did you run all the tests to find out that you were dead? Like, yeah. how do like we know you, you were dead? If you thought you were dead, you should have good reason. Right. Okay. Sort of that kind of. A... So, Simone, the next response is, the answer to the question to, did you try everything, is I waited. Now, Simone... This is hard, but I'm going to quote from later in the book and then turn it over to you to talk about waiting. This is hard. Way later in the book, and I'll just say the page number for people listening, page 120. Then all life is a form of waiting, but it is the waiting of loneliness. So later in the book, we have waiting and loneliness. Here we have, you tried everything, I waited. You spoke aloud, I said, God rest me. You'd let me be lonely. So... Can you help us get started on understanding the relationship between waiting and loneliness? And I'll just up the ante by saying I think this is the key to the book. Uh-huh. <laughs> Simone, can you just... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Yeah, I mean, here you are with a flu, and you're probably having visions. <laughs> um, well, you know, what comes right after that um, quote from page 120 that you just read is a reference to Levinas. Yeah, I know. Um, do you want to read so, the Levinas? Or it's yeah, over? sure. Um, so she says, Levinas writes, the subject who speaks is situated in relation to the other. This privilege of the other ceases to be incomprehensible once we admit that the first fact of existence is neither being in itself nor being for itself, but being for the other. In other words, that human existence is a creature. By offering a word, the subject puts himself forward, lays himself open, and in a sense, prays. Yeah. So, I, you know, this sort of, you know, I don't know, uncrossable bridge between existences um, into which one begins to speak 
and in you know in this passage to pray towards the closing of that gap seems to me um, to be the sort of resonant um, function of of waiting here on page sixteen. Yeah, well, let's keep let's stay on it. Um, the relationship between waiting and lonely is made twice in the book at least, so we mm-hmm. have to, we have to figure it out. And you've taken us a long way with the Levinas and it's and this connection here to language to words. And this is on page sixteen a poem written by the speaker. Mm-hmm. So let's mm-hmm. go to the cue. Let's go to the the uh, front page of mm-hmm. this uh, uh, of the Grey Wolf the Press. Gr- uh-huh. We have a field. We have a billboard uh-huh. on a highway, an American uh-huh. highway mm-hmm. out in the country. It looks like. Mm. And on the billboard is imposed with presumably, you know, Photoshop or something, mm-hmm. don't let me, me be, be lonely. lonely. Mm-hmm. And then way at the bottom, above Claudia Rankin, the mm-hmm. name of the writer, is an American lyric. Uh-huh. Okay. Can can you do something, something with that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try. <laughs> <Something>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I thought about this title for quite a while because uh, it's a really complicated construction. In a sense, the book is about construction. It's very constructive space, as you also said at the beginning of, of your introduction, right? Now, it sounds very simple, don't let me be lonely, but let's think about kind of the syntax. It's different from don't smoke because of the word let, right? Let, right? Uh, don't smoke is a negative uh, imperative, right? But don't let me be lonely. There's an other there. That's right, right? And so this is a kind of interesting infra-creation of space, if you like, between me and you. When you say, it's a bit like, let's say, when you say, say, excuse me, right? This is an interesting imperative, right? You're actually allowing yourself to, to be excused by the other, right? So I'm interested in that kind of imperative, but also negative imperative, right? But the third layer of complexity is the, the appearance of let me. This is a structure of prayer that I think uh, uh, Rankin is also alluding to in reference to, to Levinas, yes. the question of the other, right? So the I disappear into this, this presence uh, where the difference between death and life is not clear, except that one needs to go through that space of what she calls disappointment, which comes mm-hmm. first, yeah. right? So life yeah. is either... So life is absence, mm-hmm. and then the alternative to that is death, which is also absence. So the choices are dismal. Um, Gabe, <laughs> Gabe, I'm, I'm turning it over to you on the American lyric. This mm-hmm. An American lyric says to me, here we have, yet again, an American poet writing an epic that has the word American in the title. This uh-huh. is a great claim. Uh-huh. I think the book lives up to that claim. Can you say something about why Don't Let Me Be Lonely would have anything to do with an American lyric? I mean, after all, the the (laughs) self-constituted people of the American Republic has always been about the social contract and the social relation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Claudia Rankin is talking about how that thing gets ripped to shreds constantly. It's true. Yeah. Uh uh So do you want to take it on? Yeah, I feel feel slightly unequipped to answer the question without mentioning also, though, that uh, her later book, a uh, very lesser-known little title called Citizen. Um, <laughs> you're, also let the record the same, show you're being ironic. Yes, it's yeah. a very well-known poem, book-length poem called Citizen. It has the same subtitle, so yeah, Citizen in American right. Lyric. Right? And so I think the work it does there is to say that the, in Citizen, I mean, that the racial dynamics and um, issues that 
Rankin discusses in Citizen are inherently American. It's like a sort of politicizing phrase. Here it's slightly more complicated, I think, because we are talking about a lot of things that aren't seen necessarily as political or necessarily as national, right? You can't say death is American. You can't, like, that alone, you You can't can't say say. Alzheimer's is American. (laughs) But you can, I think, which is the work she does, connect certain ways of, like, political mourning, um, political events around death, and connect them to personal accounts of death, um, and then also, furthermore, complicate the idea of what death even could be as a certain kind of citizen in a nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then you can say it's an American lyric. Man, he is deceased. Boy, he is dead to me. Man, so he is not deceased. Boy, I don't know, he could be dead. Man, is he or is he not dead? Boy, he's been dead to my life. Man, someone wrote in your file that he is dead. Did you tell someone he is dead? Boy, all right, he is dead. Um, papa. What what I'd like to do is I want to go around the horn twice, twice more. The first time I want each of us to refer to something else in the book, a moment, a passage, so that people listening to this conversation um, who've heard us do a close reading of four pages or three can then think about some other things that we found that relate, that are relevant, or that are just interesting. And I'll start... Um, I think the reference to happy, happily, happens, which and she refers to Lynn Hedginian, I believe, in the notes, in the footnotes. And Lynn Hedginian has a book called Happily, which I really admire, in which she describes the the origin of happily has to do with happenstance, happening. And so I, I, I... I don't know ultimately how I feel about the tone of this book, but I believe that Claudia Rankin is picking up that definition of happily by describing life as what happens. And happily is a way of facing the reality of what happens, as in shit happens. And I really like that reference. So that's my that's mine. Gabe, another thing in the book that you would draw people's attention to? Yeah, it's really small, I think. But one of the things that I – one p- moment I remember that I really enjoy is I think about midway through the book. I don't remember the page now. Um, she is at the airport or she narrates being at the airport. There's some security stuff. There's some security stuff. And she almost narrates it as if she doesn't know what the security proceedings are. So – the example I'm remembering is they say – she says something like, I go to the airport and they tell me to drink my water. And th- she's like, this water? They're like, yes, that water. And so you can think of the actual, like, reasons why they're telling her to drink water. But it's not described. So it's sort of this, like, action that's made very strange. And, and it reminds me actually a lot of the of the narrative tactics throughout the book. Um, it's sort of this present tense that's hypothetical but also – Maybe real and kind it's of also obscured. an interrogation. It's yeah. post nine mm-hmm. eleven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. probably feeling like nervous about this security. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and it makes it sound, I mean, it makes it sound, it achieves making these instructions sound not commonplace, reading it from a 2017 perspective. Like, it's not weird for me to be told to take off my shoes at the airport because I've been doing it for a very long time. But she makes it sound weird if it's like, I'm at the airport and people tell me to take off my shoes. Mm-hmm. And that's all mm-hmm. she tells you. Yeah, yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Simone, what uh, what part of the book would you like to recommend or mention? Well, I, I'd like to mention the fact that the author or the, the speaker continuously insists that she's writing a book about the liver. The idea, I love that it's connected to the idea of what happens because the liver is sort of the sort of ground zero, um, to use a mm-hmm. terrible phrase, of of everything that happens in the body, right? So yeah. it's like whatever whatever toxins, whatever complications, whatever medications, whatever we can't process. So in a way, this book is about the liver. It's wow. like this is hmm. such a great, um, it's such a great invention of hers. Simone, that's amazing what that's you just amazing. said. Yeah. <laughs> and I read it so literally. So, right. But I, I really like this concept of yours that the liver become the book's kind of the book that she was going to write about the liver. And it turned out to be Don't Let Me Be Lonely in American mm-hmm. Lyric. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, everything that, yeah, as you say, the liver is the thing that has to process everything. Uh, that that the, the the body can't process otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's really mm-hmm. great. I just said what you said, but it, I'm <laughs> happy, happy to repeat it to, to convince repeat. myself yeah. of how brilliant uh-huh. it is. Uh-huh. All right. So, Q, quickly, yeah. Yeah. A, um, a thing in the book that thing you would recommend. Um, yeah. I'd like to think about an act uh, that, that really stands out for me. This kind of writing or thinking as listening seems very important. Right? And then literally, you know, when she goes into the funeral kind of home, you know, she talks about, I listen, but do not speak, right? I mean, this notion of listening as a kind of post-factual, post-eventual kind of almost re-eventualization of, of the event, you know, this is kind of something about the happening, right? Mm-hmm. So because given that it's just written like, you know, after the fact, right? It's sort of so post-9-11, post-Katrina, post-Trevor Martin, you know, this is a kind of, you know, the works that she writes, uh, uh, Claudia writes, it has this sort of notion of after the fact, right? But sort of listening is a very, I think, is, 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 is an important kind of uh, thread, yeah. uh, that connects yeah. all the sort of the, uh, the occasions and events. Uh, yeah. No, I agree. Thank mm-hmm. you. That's great. I do think that listening and waiting are connected somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one last round. This is the this is the one thing you wanted to say today uh, that you haven't had a chance so far in this discussion. Uh, something, you know, let's be brief, but something in the book that, uh, or in the passages that we listen to that you feel need to be added to the record. Gabe, you first? Yeah. Um, I feel like in Poem Talk, we don't tend to talk too personally, but I will say, like, um, one thing that's for me an active part of the reading experience of this book is like my father passed away from brain cancer and and Rankin talks a lot about um, sort of what, what, what living with cancer or what people who have cancer um, or who die from cancer actually more specifically uh, go through and, and what that experience is like. And I remember there's one passage, forgive me for not remembering the page, is she says something like um, – her personality was overtaken by the condition and that um, the condition had imprinted itself onto her more actively than her personality, something like that. And that feels so like very true to me and the way in which um, 
the disease or the condition becomes the person more than the person you remember to be the person. Um, and that's sort of what's so tragic or um, interesting about the Alzheimer's passage, which we read from and we talked about. And and the end of it, which the recording didn't include, um, is the friend with Alzheimer's having this moment where he's watching TV and he keeps saying, I want to see the lady who deals in death and Rankin is sort of unsure of what that might mean. Turns out the next show is Murder, She Wrote. And it's like a kind of creepy but almost humorous way. Fre- of freshly using the language to describe, you know, a mediocre television yeah. show. Exactly. Yeah. Simone, uh, something in the book you wanted to, or a point you wanted to put in the record? Yeah. I, I, I just wanted to say that I am so interested in the ways in which these the early um, conversations that we are actually talking about, about what death is, what, what being dead is, what does being dead feel like, um, so presciently sort of sets or lays the groundwork for later work in um, Afro-pessimism and also um, in thinking, trying to think for myself um, right now in my own work about how rap music works in this way to sort of um, talk about and foreground the importance of um, being sort of numbed by various experiences of pain and death. I mean, she refers a little bit to Cornel West here and and nihilism, but I think that conversation has actually become um, pretty heated in the African-American thought community. So this book is now more than 10 years old, and Claudia has been there for a long time. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Are you are you suggesting that this is a, a helpful historical pre-write to the conversation as it got heated later? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Q, uh, something you wanted to add that um, you hadn't had a chance so far today? There's so much to talk about. I know, I love, know, I right? love having you on Poem Talk. You've yeah, got a uh, lot to say. <laughs> Um, I would just... Uh, You're always just, deciding at the moment right, which right. of the many... So that's, exactly. I think I want to talk about the moment, right? The moment. Okay, so the, cool. I, 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 and you're so uh, today, <laughs> It's also thinking about, you know, one of the phrases that we, we talked about today. I mean, the point. So let me just quote it. You know, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? That's so great. <laughs> right. Wow. <laughs> I'll leave it at that and, and just... Uh, that's kind of devastating. <laughs> but but, but Thanks, with, 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 with a footnote, okay. page one one nine. This is a. Did you say one? Waiting for what? One one nine. So life is form of hope. Again, a question, a statement, and a question. Life is a hope, and then further down is a waiting for what? For life to begin. I am here, and I am still lonely. Um, let me leave it at that. Perfect transition to my final thought here, which is the Paul Ceylon section on 130. We have on the bottom of that page a picture of the same field, although it's black and white, the same field with the billboard, and the billboard just says here. So we get this crucial indexical word of presence. Paul Ceylon said that the poem is no different from a handshake. I cannot see any basic difference between a handshake and a poem is how Rosemary Waldrop translated his German. The handshake is our decided ritual of both asserting, I am here, like, hello, handshake, and handing over a here, 
a self to another. Hence the poem is that, here, I am here. Uh, or one meaning of here is in this world, in this life, on this earth. It also means to hand something to somebody. Here you are. What she's doing here is pausing in the middle of this book to work out the Ars Poetica of what the poem is and how the poem, its hereness, is a handshake, which is a very social act and a ritual act. This poem is given to us as a counter to the absences and the deaths, right? And the, the sort of dis disappearing of the black lives in the instance we presume of the boy being interrogated. Here is the poem, and she's creating a here, even though it's not happily happy in the cliche sense of happy, but actually the shit happens sense of happy. And the poem is a gesture of invitation and presence. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise. You know, Q, I forgot to tell you about this. It's a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world and will allow you to do the philosophical world if you want, Q. So we're going to gather some paradise. Gabe, did you forget to think of one? Yeah, I did forget to think of one. I'm, okay. I'll come up with one. Okay, Simone, do you have a gathering paradise? I forgot to tell you too. I completely forgot about it, but I have one. Okay, great. Um, I Here just you are mention... ill, and you're outpacing us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to mention, I think, Arlo Quint's new book, which is called um, Wires and Lights. Um, it's on a small press called Rust Buckle. It's really excellent. Fantastic mm. recommendation. Okay, Gabe, we gave you a little time. Do you have a... Gathering Paradise. I do. Um, I've been reading a lot recently, and one book that stood out to me is um, also from Future Poem, who published Simone's book, uh, Si and Juliet Lee's Solar Maximum. It's really great, and I really enjoyed it, and I would just sort of recommend it. Fantastic. Q, can you recommend somebody or something? Uh, the current seasonal paradise <laughs> uh, that I feel that I'm inhabiting um, and can recommend uh, is uh, the collective writings of uh, the poems of Barbara Guest. Wonderful. Barbara Guest. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Long ago, we did a Barbara Guest poem mm -hmm. talk. Mm -hmm. Well, my gathering par paradise is really weird because I don't th generally think of Neanderthal as associated conventionally with um, paradise, but uh, I just want to commend a lot of new work, uh, four or five books and some key articles in science-ish journals, but also mainstream media, on the, our developing understanding of how language uh, came to us as a species. And anybody who's interested in, um, you know, poetics in the largest sense, uh, I would highly recommend that you think about how human beings and why, we have to speculate on this, why we had for so long everything, all the all the tools we needed in the throat and the tongue and the teeth and in the mouth and the vocal cords to speak, but presumably did not, it may have spoken, but then, but then developed social communication, which of course led to communities and led to social contracts. Why did that happen? Hundreds of thousands and maybe a million years after we had the capacity to do that, Poetry, it is said, 
kind of derives from that moment, the first moment when it, it went beyond, don't go to the river, there's a lion there, <laughs> to, <laughs> to the animals are coming in the spring, let us sing of the animals that are returning in the spring, we will eat, we will be happy, we will build a fire, yeah. So that's my weird, my weird <laughs> gathering paradise. Well, that's all the waiting and loneliness we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Q Lee, Simone White, Gabriel Ojeda Segay, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardiner and Ari Lewis, and to Poem Talk's editor, the very same amazing Zach Cardiner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be hosting a conversation about Lorenzo Thomas's poem, An Ark Still Open, which is about the muralist John Thomas Biggers with Tyrone Williams, Alden Nielsen, and Billy Joe Harris. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.